Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. And this week, I'm about as excited as Adam Gase's eyeballs at a press conference because I'm joined by Matt Barrows, writer at The Athletic, to discuss the newest additions to the staff, a little Antonio Brown news, and his fantastic story in The Athletic, the oral history of the divisional game against the Saints. I was really pumped to have Matt on. He's been a longtime friend of the pod. So without further ado, we're going to jump right into it because Matt was real, real gracious with his time and we were able to tackle all the news bits, as well as a story talk here in about 45 minutes. So settle in and enjoy a great interview with Matt Barrows from The Athletic. Matt, thanks for coming on the Better Rivals podcast. You were one of the original friends of the pod, so it's good to have you back. Thanks for having me back. Yes, always enjoy being on this pod. Yeah, it's, um, I actually went back and looked even way back in 2008, the first time I tried to launch a podcast. Um, I actually had you on. You were like one of the first guests and you were so gracious back then to, to come on the show. And now 10 years later, uh, here we are doing something eerily similar. 2008 is uh, Singletary. Is that um, Mike Martz year? Uh, it I'm may have been. Yeah, so 2007 was the Ken Dorsey year. I think 2008 may have been Mike Martz with the, uh, the old JTO. Uh, just turn it over. JTO, yeah. When Mike Martz decided, uh, I'm going to make... Vernon Davis into a left tackle. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the best way to use this this asset is to have him stay back and block every <laughs> every play. That's, yeah. And then three years later, here's Vernon Davis. Uh, you know, the, the game of his lives in the uh, in the playoffs uh, against the the Saints, and then the Giants. He was really good in that game too. It's so funny. I was watching uh, the Washington Redskins play, and it was Alex Smith throwing to vernon davis on yeah. you know, a, a deep crossing route and i'm like wow it's uh it's 2018 this is this is still a thing yeah i mean uh that's, that's some good genetics with both <laughs> with both of those guys there and um you know uh vernon i remember he got uh he took a big hit um against pittsburgh i think it was his rookie season and missed a big chunk of that season but he'd really gone uninjured uh, for most of his time with the 49ers. And, and I think that comes uh, comes to bear at the end of these guys' careers. I mean, uh, all those injuries start to catch up with you. And, and Vernon, I think it was Troy Palomalo submarined him um, on a hit. Uh, some of your your longest-standing listeners will, will remember that. Um, and uh, I think he, he suffered a, a fracture in one of those, those leg bones down there. Um, but that's the only major one I can remember with him. Yeah, he did. He did have a long, illustrious, glorious, Jamba Juice-filled career uh, with the 49ers. Yeah. We'll we'll get to a little bit of Vernon Davis when we talk about the New Orleans story. But first, I want to talk about the assistant coaching search because that's what's dominating your time right now. The 49ers, of course, hired Chris Kosurik. I think I got that right uh, as the new yep. de- the, the new defensive line coach. Uh, and I think my first question really is why you think the team moved on from Jeff Zagonia because he it was pretty quick. I mean, the Gase was fired uh, December 31st, and Brian Flores kind of informally hired as the head coach January 13th. And then just a few hours later, it seems like the team's like, sorry, we fired Zagonia. And then they aggressively pursued uh, Chris Kosurik, which was a bit of a risk. So uh, kind of help me understand what was the, the impetus for making that, and that, that move and taking the leap, not knowing that they had uh, another coach under contract. 
Well, I, I think it's um, multi-layered. You know, one is that this was a four-win team, and despite what Kyle Shanahan said about um, you know keeping the the staff intact, uh, you know, a four-win team has to look at every avenue to improve itself and. Uh, they obviously felt like they could make an upgrade at that spot. So, I mean, th- that that says all, all, all you need to know about Jeskanina. They liked him, but um, they weren't uh, bowled over by him. Um, I'd noticed over the years, over the last two years, that he wasn't a big fan of Solomon Thomas's either. Um, and uh, you, you saw that reflected in the, in the snap counts. You see that reflected in... A lot of times you can tell who's the the favored son in these groups by who takes the uh, you know the first reps uh, when a uh, you know a wide receiver group goes through a drill or a running back group goes through a drill or a uh, defensive line group goes through a drill and uh, it certainly wasn't Solomon Thomas um, doing that and uh, I heard Skinina barking at Thomas a few times over the last two years it was clear that uh, you know, he he wasn't one of uh, Skinina's favorites and. This is a guy that the franchise really wants to see succeed, given the uh, uh, the, the spot that they they uh, they picked him. So I can't help but think that that uh, must have played a role as well. And then thirdly, um, I think they do legitimately have a lot of um, uh, respect uh, for the new guy. Uh, as you noted, they, they made these moves right after. Um, the, the Dolphins parted ways with him, so that was sort of the impetus for it all. So they, they feel like he's going to be an improvement on that defensive line. Now, do you think this was a move that Robert Sala requested? Do you think it was Cal Shanahan taking a look and making a move? Which, Where did this decision point come from? I don't know the, the answer to that. Uh, my guess is that um, it's... Uh, you know, it probably originated on the defensive side um, with, with, with Shanahan saying, you know, if we were going to upgrade anywhere, where would you want to do it? And, and you, 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 saw, you saw that start to happen last year. Remember, um, Chris Kiffin was brought in at, the, at this time a year ago and essentially helped coach the defensive line. So this is an area that they have been obviously uh, at the very least been wanting to augment um, since uh, since last season or since the end of last season, so uh, I, I think they probably knew where the weaknesses were, and, and like I said, they they saw a uh, a potential replacement, and uh, they uh, they pounced on it. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that uh, the Skinina, which I've been pronouncing it Zagonia all this time. That, that is something that we are why, known. And for. why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you pronounce it as Zagonia? <laughs> it's that's how it's spelled. Yeah, that's how I used to uh, pronounce it until I was corrected. So, uh, yeah, I don't know how you get Skinina out of uh, Zagonia, but um, that's that's how you say it. You know, we we have a. <laughs> it's a long tradition of pronouncing names accurately here on the Better Rivals podcast. We're known for it, really. It's part of our brand, I would say. That's good. That's good. So it's curious that he was not one of the favorites of Skinina because there did seem to be a bit of a disconnect with Shanahan, especially late in the season, talking about the the playing time of Solomon Thomas. And he would say, you know, I hope we get more snaps on the inside. And, And I think from the outsider's perspective, it almost seemed like a rift between Sala and Shanahan. But, you know, come to find out, that's probably more of the position coach's influence than anything else. 
Well, yeah. I mean, it's the position coach that uh, is, is sort of sending these guys in and out of the game. So he's really the one who's dictating uh, the snap counts. And, and that was a really easy way to kind of figure things out and, and will be in the future. I mean, just, just look who's playing. That's all you need to see. Um, you know, these guys can you know, say all the positive things in the world. And, and Salas developed a, a bit of a reputation uh, of that among the media. Um, you know, he gives everybody really sunny praise, and, and I'm sure the, the players appreciate that. But um, uh, you, you really kind of see what's going on behind the scenes by who's playing uh, what snaps. And uh, it was clear that Solomon Thomas wasn't getting a lot of them early in the season. It was clear that Shanahan wanted that to change. And uh, it, it did change after he said that. So uh, I, I think that's that's kind of the all, all you you need to know of the uh, outline of how that went. Do you think this increases the chances of the the team going after someone like Ziggy Ansah, given the history of the new defensive line coach in Detroit, uh, and the fact that Ansah is an impending free agent and someone that the team may have been interested in uh, last year in the free agency period? Yeah, um, you know, there's there, certainly now two guys that know all about him, uh, the new uh, position coach and Martin Mayhew. Um, what I don't know is whether these guys love Ziggy Yonsa or, you know, were, were disappointed by him. Um, I, I don't know the answer. Um, but uh, it does seem like if you're kind of circling edge rushers who will become available, and most of these guys won't, um, Ansa yeah, is one who, who looks like... no. Most of the time you don't, but Ansa was franchised last year, um, was injured again this this past year, and um, they're not going to franchise him again, uh, I, I don't think, just because of the, the cost of doing that. Uh, so he is one guy that looks like uh, he will make it to the free agent market, and you can definitely see a scenario where um, they bring him in, he's the Leo, you know, three down guy, uh, you know, very physical, very strong. And, uh, then they draft somebody like Josh Allen out of Kentucky and he's the, the strong side linebacker, three down guy, keep him on the field, um, and rush those guys from the edges when it's, uh, you know, a, uh, an obvious passing situation. So, um, that's, a that's, a a fairly obvious, um, you know, solution to their edge issues. And, uh, you know, it, it, it could be one that, uh, comes to pass uh, in in uh, March and, and then April. Now, one thing that I thought you noted that was interesting in, in one of your Q&As in The Athletic was you noticed, you mentioned that this signals perhaps a change in the 49ers' defensive philosophy. And you said that now perhaps the defensive line is going to maybe just kind of peek at the run while they're getting at the quarterback. Um, what do you think, is that just a, a coaching change or, or did you hear something from the staff in general that made you think, okay, this is actually going to be an active change. It's going to be Pass, pass, pass. We'll worry about the run later. Yeah, I, I, I've I've heard it uh, talked about as sort of a philosophical change, and and you understand why. I mean, uh, there was a, a stat today that for the first time in NFL history, teams passed more on first down than they than they ran. Um, so uh, that's more and more, we say this every year, but it's it's uh, it's uh, e- even more so now. Teams are just passing the ball all the time. So it's the most efficient um, play you know, football. Right, exactly. Uh, and, uh, you know, rushing the passer then becomes paramount. Um, I remember talking to Booger McFarland during the season. I was asking about Solomon Thomas and what the 49ers should do with Solomon Thomas, et cetera, et cetera. 
And uh, he said that, you know, those Tampa defenses that he and John Lynch and Warren Sapp played in, and early on they did not have any uh, decent edge rushers. They only uh, acquired Simeon Rice later. Early on, the philosophy of that team was play the run on the way to the quarterback. Um, if If the opponent happens to hand the ball off, you're already, you know, beating the crap out of the the guy in front of you to get to the quarterback. Just just tackle the, the ball carrier on your way in. And um, uh, I think that, I don't know if it's going to be quite to that degree, the new philosophy, but um, I, it wouldn't surprise me if it is. I mean, you've got a guy in Chris Kiffin who is the son of uh, the, the architect of those very um, uh, Tampa Bay defenses that we're talking about, the, the, the Tampa Bay defense that, John Lynch played on. So uh, I uh, I would not be surprised if they adopt a very similar um, attitude to that. Uh, I know that Seattle is, is always going to be the, the measure and the um, the defense uh, for which the, the 49ers is based on, but I wonder if attitude-wise it's going to be those, uh, those late 90s Tampa defenses. Well, I, I think that's a welcome change, and, and I'm actually excited if that is indeed going to be something the team is going to emphasize because th- this is a passing league. It's it's the new NFL, and, and you look at the four offenses that are in the championship games, and they're the top four offenses of the league. You know, their defense is kind of all over the place, and, and the Chiefs, uh, they you know they depending on whether or not they play at home or away, it depends on whether or not they pack a defense to play. So, I think the there's it's it's an interesting debate. I think as to whether or not you just keep improving your offense so you don't need as much of a defense or you try to remain a balanced a little bit. And one of the other areas where the Niners improved a little bit, I think, is in hiring Joe Woods as the defensive backs coach and defensive passing game coordinator, which I think is an interesting title to append to his uh, his name. Makes for an interesting business card, I guess. Uh, but he was someone who the the Niners, I think, got, got a little better uh, by subtraction and intentionally uh, when Jeff Halfley left to be the co-defensive coordinator at Ohio State. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, at least you have more experience there and, that seems to be, uh, you know, something that the 49ers are, uh, you know, interested in. They've got a very young, outside of Richard Sherman, a very young secondary. And you saw some guys, um, you know, doing things that uh, they they didn't like. Um, Akella Witherspoon, Adrian Colbert, uh, et cetera. They didn't, um, didn't have any uh, um, competition in the offseason. Um I felt like they went through the the preseason just making sure that they didn't get hurt, especially at the safety position. Yeah, that worked out well. Um, yeah, exactly. And then and then the regular season starts, and no one knows how to tackle. Well, that's because nobody was was practicing it uh, in in training camp and in the preseason. So I mean, I think all of that is related. They wanted a guy uh, who who could bring a little thunder uh, to the position room, and um, you know they, they think that they found it. And Joe Woods, I, I, I really don't know him at all. I, I don't know anybody that's, that's worked with him. Uh, so I can't, I can't say, but the, that, that experience is what I think the 49ers were after. Now, in Denver, he, was, uh, he played a lot of cover one, played a lot of man coverage. He played about 35% cover one and about 45% man coverage overall. The Niners are not quite that high. Um, when you look at the, the man coverage percentage that Robert Sala uses, it's usually in about a 25%-ish area. A little bit below league average. Um, he definitely his own team. Um, but when you look at their split safety looks, they played more after the bye, but still, I mean, they're, they're a cover three, you know, single high defense. Do you think that this will also bring additional man coverage um, kind of or an increase in man coverage to the defense? 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I would think that Robert Shaw has the say in that uh, aspect of it. Um, you know, I, I tend to think that they should, and that would kind of go hand in hand with what we were talking about as far as the defensive line, uh, just more aggressive across the board. They played some of their um, best. They played some of their best games when they were in man coverage, and there were a couple of games, especially late in the year, where they opened heavy pressure and, and man coverage on the back end, and they just have athletes back there. They do. Um, I mean, Tarverius Moore, super athletic dude. Akella Witherspoon, also athletic. Sherman is regaining the old man dad strength that, you know, he once had. And, and I think that part of the reason they didn't get a lot of turnovers this year was because they were just not near the ball to make a play. Uh, and that's what happens when you spot drop. You're, you're just you're breaking on the ball and you're just a beat behind when today's quarterbacks are really good. Uh, and I think man coverage will put your defenders in, in more of a position to succeed. So I, I do hope we see more of that. Well, it, it always surprised me that we didn't see a lot of it the first two years under Shaw. I always kind of uh, thought that the Seattle defense went hand in hand with that sort of aggressive, in-your-face uh, press coverage, you know, right at the line of scrimmage. And the, and the 49ers haven't done that as much as uh, I was expecting when uh, when Shaw was coming in. Yeah, it's uh, there's there's a lot. I think Saleh gets a, a bad rap in a lot of ways for for his scheme. It's it's a variable scheme. There's lots of there's a lots of there's a lot that goes into it and. We've, we've talked at length on the show about it, so uh, our listeners probably don't want to hear me wax philosophical about the, the issues with Salah, but uh, hopefully I think Joe Woods brings a bit more of that man coverage because I think, um, you know, in today's NFL, if you can play man coverage, or at least you can mix it up and not stay predictable uh, and not end up like the Chargers where you play, you know, man coverage just 10% of the time, and so when your zone coverage isn't working, you have no changeup and you have nothing to go to, um, I think overall you're, you're a better off defense. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree, um, and uh, that'll be something to kind of add to the the repertoire, I think, in in year three of this scheme. Now, Rich Gangarello, he interviewed for the Broncos' offensive coordinator job. He is the odds-on favorite for getting it. I don't know if they've actually formally announced him getting that job, but it seems like that's a lock. He's now in day two or day three of the interview process. But I'm curious why he was initially blocked, but then was allowed to interview because the team has seemed to have blocked just about everyone. Uh, except for Scangarello. So what was it about the the job, the role, or anything that, that initiated the change of heart for the 49ers? Well, I don't even know if there was a change of heart. I mean, uh, it, I haven't figured out what happened initially that um, they uh, they rejected the interview request. Crowder uh, Shanahan was on vacation for a little while. I wonder if the, the disconnect is as simple as, as that, that you know somebody else sort of speaking for him. And then when he got back, um, you know, in communicado, he, uh, he, he sorted it out. Um, you know, one of the reasons is because, you know, uh, the other, the other two guys, uh, Mike McDaniel and Michael Fleur, um, they were requested for OC positions as well. They're already coordinators, um, in title. One is the pass game coordinator. The other is the run game coordinator. And they, they help Shanahan with, uh, the, uh, the the game planning each week. I mean, he's those are his two uh, top lieutenants, um, and uh, they were being asked to interview with teams where they wouldn't have play calling duties. So it would their 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 uh, uh, duties in um, Arizona and in Green Bay wouldn't have been all that different than what they are here in Santa Clara. Um, so I think that was part of it. Uh, he leans heavily on those guys. He wants them around. I mean, I think that's probably an, an even bigger part. And then as far as Scangarello, 
um, it is a, a, a true promotion for him. I mean, he um, he's going from quarterbacks coach to offensive coordinators. So, um, and he would know, call plays it, under Vic Fangio because Vic Fangio. Would and like he, he's definitely going to call plays under under Vic Fangio. So it's uh, it's a true step up the ladder for Scangarello that would have been pretty hard for um, for Shanahan to block because it, you are keeping this guy from a, a golden opportunity. Um, so, uh, I, I would like to know sort of the backroom haggling that went on there. I mean, the, these two, uh, franchises are obviously close to one another, uh, given who's in, uh, in the power positions, uh, of them all. So I, I, I guarantee you there was some wrangling. Um, I don't know what that is at this point, but I'll, I'll find out soon enough. Yeah, I wonder if this does anything to Nick Mullins next year, because I, I do think they will have a legitimate competition for that number two role. And, and Shanahan might, may end up keeping all three quarterbacks on, on the active roster. But uh, I think you've mentioned it and Mayoko's mentioned it as well, that um, Mullins was a Scangarello guy. And if we go back to what we learned earlier with the Solomon Thomas discussion, you know, your position coach does influence how much you play and, and whether or not you play. And I think quarterback's a little bit different because obviously Shanahan has a very, very active hand in that. But uh, I wonder if Scangarello is indeed Mullins' advocate. Uh, if Shanahan doesn't end up, you know, kind of tie goes to the guy I drafted type of thing uh, and, and ends up uh, you know, impacting what Mullins, what comes of the competition next year. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely a, a Mullins advocate. He's the guy that kind of identified him during the 2017 draft process and then championed uh, the 49ers um, um, signing him after the draft. They, they even brought him in on an official 30 visit, which you usually don't do, uh, for a guy that you have no, um, you know, inkling of, of, of drafting, but they wanted to make sure that the Niners were the only uh, team that did so, right? That was his only, yeah, that, they, that was, that was his only visit. So they, they had him on the hook at that point. He wasn't going to go anywhere else after the draft. Um, I don't think that it's going to happen. Um, you know, it, it could, I mean, my, my guess is that Denver wants to go big at that position. Um, a, a much more experienced quarterback like um, uh, Nick Foles or, or somebody like that, or uh, a first rounder again. So, um, you know, uh, yeah, the, the, those guys that the 49ers would deal are, are kind of looked on as, as backups, good backups in, in Mullen's case. Uh, but uh, my, my guess is that that wouldn't happen, um, at, at least not this year. And honestly, if I'm a team around the league and I think that there's going to be a competition, one of two things is going to happen. One of those quarterbacks is going to get cut or they're all going to remain on the team. If they all remain on the team, the issue's moot. Maybe you try to initiate some kind of late round trade talk. But if you think that one of them could get cut, just wait till they do and then put a waiver claim yeah. on them. Uh, yeah, it's and, not going to take long for those guys to pick up the, the Denver offense. Exactly. Uh, they, they already know it. That's exactly right. Uh, so last question, kind of in the news recap, let's talk about, about Antonio Brown. Of course, lots of things have been coming out about him really wanting to be a Niner. And, you know, despite what many fans think, just because Jerry Rice says it doesn't mean it's going to happen. Uh, the, the key really is in the asking price. Do you think, based on what you're hearing from the team, that the, the team is willing to part with some important draft capital in order to bring someone like Antonio Brown into the building? Yes. Um, now, what that draft capital is, I, d I don't know. Um, You're the GM, Matt. I, give me what, what you would accept or what you would give up, what you would part with uh, for someone like that. I, I wouldn't part with either of my first two picks. I mean, I just feel like uh, the, the 49ers have been 
designing their roster for this draft. I mean, they've stayed away from edge rushers um, because they knew that this might be a good draft, and it is. So, you know, I, I feel like that that's definitely going to go. Uh, they're going to go use their number two overall pick on that position. And then they've got, you know, one of the top picks in, in the second round. They can parlay that into more picks, um, which is what I, I think that they'd like to do with that. Um, would you use that pick to get a guy who's going to be 31 next year and starting to show a little bit of, of age and, and certainly a lot of crankiness? Um, I will say that the more – this might be ingenious – and if it is, if he is doing this, this means that Antonio Brown is really, really smart. The more he goes on social media and makes it difficult um, and acts like, yeah, acts like like a diva, the, the less a team is going to offer the Steelers for him. So, um, you know, it, it, uh, it, it kind of screws the Steelers over in the process. They have to get rid of him, but now they're not getting as much back. So that would be really, really smart, but... Um, I wonder if, uh, you know, team, the, 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 the potential suitors are looking at all this and saying to themselves, gee, do we really want this guy who's so eager, uh, to burn bridges in a place where he's had so much success on our squad? We're not going to have as much success in the passing game, at least early on as the Steelers. If he wasn't happy there, is he going to be happy with us? Yeah, it is interesting. I think that, I think if there is a locker room that could, uh, well, not hold him, right? But I think if, if you've got a good culture, and I think the Niners do, uh, you, you're able to take more of a risk on someone like Antonio Brown. But man, that, I think you're right. That draft capital, the first two picks, the, those are your prize picks. So if you're going to part with draft capital, it's going to be a third round pick and maybe a future pick. And, and that's, I think that's probably, if a deal gets done, what, what it might take in order to get done. Yeah, I think that they feel like they can get two defensive starters with those picks. Now, whether that's you know uh, a, a Sam outside linebacker and uh, and a Leo or a Leo and a free safety um, or what, I don't know. But uh, that, that's that's how I think that they're thinking heading into this draft. Well, let's switch gears a little bit, and, and I wanted to talk about something else that was not news related, but it was about a story that you wrote in the Athletic, and it was the oral history of the what I affectionately call the latest Forty Nine ers Super Bowl, uh, and that was the divisional game against New Orleans Saints. And first of all, if you're listening to the show and you have not read that story in The Athletic, go buy a subscription to The Athletic and, and read that story right now because it's honestly one of the most... It's one of the it's the best thing I've read on The Athletic. And it's probably one of the better stories that I've read on the Niners just full stop. And, and so I wanted to have you on to chat a bit about it. Talk to me about the process and, and figure out if there's anything that maybe you didn't get to put in the story that, that you can share with the listeners. But first off, um, what, what prompted the story? What kind of gave you the idea to think, you know what, it's time to go back and review that? Well, I had read uh, oral histories that other writers have done, and and I like them. I mean, I, I I like how they they flow. I mean, they're 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 long, but they're a very fast read, um, and you sort of kind of are are able to get into the into the moment, and uh, they're, they're just a good way to um, talk about an event. You know, uh, having all the people who participated in that event. Uh, share their memories and, and, and making sure that, you know, one thought flows into the next, one quote flows into the next. And I've always felt like, you know, this this game, which is so electric, um, so memorable, and, and so kind of uh, wrought with emotion from, from start to finish. And, and it also had a great backstory in what happened 
uh, in the preseason between I'm those two teams. I'm super glad you included that too because I had forgotten about the preseason game. And and when you started the story with the 49ers that, happened. Right? <laughs> well, when you started the story with that, I was like, oh, that's right. Greg Williams is a dick. Like, yeah. And, and I, I remember at the time thinking it was a Greg Williams thing, and of course, Bounty Gate happened, and and I I kind of put that in in that area, and then to find out that oh, you know what, it was actually Sean Payton. That, that said, oh, okay, Jim Harbaugh doesn't want to take my call. Well, then fine, Greg Williams, do whatever you want. And, and that was hit the quarterback. It was, it was an interesting little reminder. Well, yeah, I mean, and that, that tells you everything you need to know about how Jim Harbaugh was perceived entering the league. I mean, they knew that he was going to be kind of prickly and, um, you know, uh, very Jim Harbaugh-like. <laughs> they, yeah. they, they nailed his personality type, but they wanted to, they wanted to kind of, uh, you know, rub his nose in it. Uh, you know, say, uh, this isn't uh, San Diego anymore. This isn't the Pac-12. This is the NFL. This is how we do things. And, uh, and they did. I mean, they, they really beat up on that team um, during that game. So, uh, yeah, and uh, they did not think that, you know, uh, 49ers team that had been eight and eight the year before weren't very good. New coach, lockout year. There's no way that we're gonna you know pay the piper on this later in the season. And uh, lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. Now, how long did it take to interview everyone? Because it, it I mean, it's sprawling. I, you, I'm sure you went back into the uh, the old phone contacts. Yeah, Adam Snyder, Jim Harbaugh, Mike Triplett. Um, you know, you've got even a good old Goody Goodwin, uh, great center for the 49ers for a few years. Um, Streif. I mean, it, you interviewed a lot of people. How long did it take to, to get all those interviews completed? A long time. I mean, I started this, uh, I knew that I wanted, I, I, I suspected that the, the Saints were going to be in the playoffs. And, um, I thought to myself, uh, wouldn't it be great to run at the same weekend, the, the divisional playoff weekend as, as that game. So I started in mid November. Joe Staley was the first interview and I sat down with him. He was the only sit down interview. Um, and, um, you know, his was, if not the best interview, one of the, the top two. So, uh, I mean, he, I, I, I included maybe one twenty fifth of all the interviews that I did, but his was the best. It was like half hour, he was profane and descriptive and like funny part, as, yeah. <laughs> as, as he always is. Um, so um, uh, he was really good. So once, once that was done, I knew that it was going to be good because, you know, that, that was already the basis. I already sort of was able to kind of weave together the outline of it um, through what he told me. And so it was just a matter of getting uh, as many voices as I could and, uh, you know, I, I had, uh, you know, uh, Alex Smith all, all, you know, ready to do, uh, and this is my big regret uh, of the story. Um, I wanted, you know, Alex Smith was one of the must have oh, voice. Yeah. He's, he's the one, you know, he, uh, when I went in, I was like, okay, I gotta get Joe Staley. I gotta get Dante Whitner. Uh, and I've got to get, uh, got to get Vernon Davis and I've got to get Alex Smith. Um, Alex Smith at the end of uh, right after the Vernon Davis touchdown at the end, there's only nine seconds left. He does something I've never seen him do, which is go up to an opponent and, and basically talk smack. And he did it to uh, Jonathan Vilma, I think. And I've always wanted to know what is it you said to Jonathan Vilma and why, why then? I mean, you're, he's just such a controlled guy um, uh, with, with a lot of fans uh, 
uh, frustrated by his his control and and he doesn't wear his heart on his sleeve. He's sort of the, the anti Joe Staley in that regard. Uh, so I really wanted to get him, but right when I, I was setting it up, that's when he got this terrible injury and then has not done any interview since then. So uh, that was uh, that was a big frustration uh, for me, and uh, I wanted to get Frank Gore, and he got injured at the end of the season and was incommunicado with uh, the the Dolphins from that point on. So there were a couple of guys that I really wanted to get that I didn't end up getting, but I ended up interviewing, I think, uh, 16 or 17 different people. And, and some of them didn't, didn't make it into the story. I mean, and cutting it, um, uh, keeping it under 6,000 words, which is a long story, the longest I've ever written, uh, is hard to do. And, and some people did not make the, uh, the cut. Was there a, a nugget or a person that you really wanted to get in there? thought it was a good tidbit, but then when, you know, in the editing process, it ended up on, on the cutting room floor. Yeah, there was. There was sort of a uh a theme, a storyline of the 49ers thinking in the on the very first drive that they had knocked Jimmy Grant, Graham out of the game. I remember Graham that, gets yeah, up really woozy, yeah. has to be helped off the field, can't stand up. Um, you know, uh you know, goes into the locker room and they think, "Okay, Graham's done, Pierre Thomas is done." And and this is a, a real victory that we've gotten these two guys out of the game. And uh, in this day and age, there's no way in God's green earth that Jimmy Graham would, would ever be allowed to come back onto the field. Clearly had a concussion. And uh, the 49ers defensive backs knew it. Um, but lo and behold, he does come back. He comes back in the in the first half. I think uh, he catches a touchdown in the second quarter. And it's one where he catches – it's one of those, you know, Drew Brees throws it up high in the middle of the end zone. Graham goes up, gets it. It sort of rolls onto his back. Uh, the momentum sort of carries him. No vicious hit or anything like that, but he, he goes back onto his back, and he's he's still concussed at that point. He gets up woozily from that, just sort of the process of you know going down your butt, onto your back, and then onto the back of your helmet. Um, a very routine play. He gets up a little bit woozy from that, doesn't do his normal slam the ball over the, the back of the, uh, the goalpost, which is his signature touchdown move. And it was that's still how, legal back then. It's still legal back then, and it, and it wouldn't be for for very much longer. So he stayed in the game, and obviously has the game of his life and and uh, the play of his life. That sixty uh, six yard touchdown with a minute thirty, a minute forty, say he catches it, um, and then uh, that puts the Saints back up by three. Were was there anyone that was reluctant to share? Did you have to pry anything from people, or were people pretty? effusive in in recounting the the story because I, I mean i think about you know the super bowl for me i've i watch every game at least two or three times and i don't know that i've seen that super bowl in in its entirety ever since the first time i watched it to be honest with you um and i don't know that i will for a very very long time and it's been a while um so was it difficult for people to kind of get back in that headspace or did you feel like it, it had there had been enough time for them to really have reflected on it and share yeah, that's one of the the nice things about this type of story is that you know time does pass and they want to share it. I mean, there was a uh, a recognition at that time that we have just played on on both uh, teams that we've just played a very momentous game, um, uh, a very important game, and and for most of the guys I interviewed, 
Uh, it was the best game of their career, their favorite game. Joe Staley, Zach Streif even said it, even though they lost. Uh, the Saints lost that game. Uh, Whitner said that he, he would put the Super Bowl above that, but um, it's, it's number two. So if it wasn't number one uh, on these guys' lists, it was number two. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's something that they wanted to share, but I think as, as time goes on, you – you want to uh, you want to do that a little bit more to sort of memorialize it. And the other part was that you know uh, at that point it was a fantastic game, but the 49ers played another game the next week, um, uh, uh, another bruiser against the uh, New York Giants. So um, a lot of the uh, you know the celebrate uh, celebration of that game got swept under the rug because there was another, you know, even bigger game coming down the pike. So people forgot about it um, and didn't really get its proper due. Uh, and that's another reason why I wanted to to write about it. Was there anything in the interview that surprised you? What was the kind of the biggest surprise when you're like, oh, I, I didn't know that, whether it be about the game or, or really about the, the, the process all told? I didn't know that just how... Um, gut-wrenching the loss was to the Saints. It's the biggest loss in the history of that franchise. I had so many people tell me that. And I'm like, wait a second, <laughs> did the Saints just lose you know, a horrible game in Minnesota when, when the guy just like, you know, tried to tackle a, a phantom on the field there? And, <laughs> and the answer was, yeah, even, even bigger than that. Um, and it was because they had been so good and so good at the end of the season. Uh, and we're just killing teams, uh, you know, scoring 40 points a game on a roll. Um, you know, Drew Brees at the top of his game, Jimmy Graham at the top of his game, Darren Sproles, untackleable, uh, Marcus Colston, Devery Henderson, just a, just a, an array of weapons and everything just working out great. And really some talented defensive players, too. I mean, uh, look at the safeties, uh, Roman Harper and... Um, God, uh, Malcolm Jenkins. I mean, the, 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 they they got rid of uh, Jenkins largely because of that game. Everybody associated Jenkins with that game, and it sort of blinded them to the fact that hey, this is this is a really good safety, and and it turned out that that he has been. I mean, a consistent All Pro and, and Pro Bowler since then. So um, I didn't realize um, just how. Uh, devastating it was to that organization. I also didn't realize that you know the the Saints and the Saints wives and girlfriends were harassed continually. Uh, that's in what Candlestick. surprised me, honestly. That's one of the things that surprised me. The and Zach Streif still like he won't let his family go to to Candlestick. I have no idea whether or not he lets them go to Levi's, but that actually surprised me a lot. What you you mentioned how it felt like people were going to like the saints were going to get into fist fights with fans as they were walking off the field. And I mean, I know there's been stories about candlestick getting a little violent at times, but I've, that was really surprising to me. Yeah. And, um, you know, apparently that's still kind of that warning exists in, in saints land that if, uh, there's an away game in, uh, in California, um, don't go. Uh, or at least don't go to the game uh, because uh, they, they've got a reputation as a really brutal crowd. So it, it's still t- discussed and talked about to this day. Wow, that's uh, that's a little disheartening. It's a little sad to be honest. Well, with that's you. that's the same year that all that violence happened in that Raiders Forty ers preseason game, and that's the reason why the Raiders and Forty ers don't, don't play. Yeah. 
don't play. It, it happened that same year. So there was there was something going on with the candlestick crowd, um, you know, at that point. And, uh, you know, there were, there were all sorts of cases of the 49ers fans, and it still happens in Levi's too, but um, it, it, it got, uh, that, that may be the crescendo of it uh, happening that season. You know, one of the other things that I, 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 you don't really forget it, but when you're given these examples, you're just freshly reminded of just how good the coaching staff was in San Francisco during the Harbaugh years. You think about the the sweep that they called because they had, you know, they had done some scouting and they knew that the Saints had a predisposition for interior blitzes and, and playing man coverage on the back end. So they they called it. Roman was like, we kind of rolled the dice, got the look we wanted and, and off we go. And the same thing happened on the long play to Vernon Davis at the end of the game where they were expecting man coverage. They called a man beater and you get that deep cross and, and Alex hits him. And then, of course, you've got the the reception, which was I think Jeep Christ ended up scouting that from his time with Carolina, where he said, you know, they, they, they play in the end zone flat footed and you can hit him with that slant right in front of the safety. Um, those are the little advantages, I think, that great coaches bring to your team. And, and in one game, you had two or three of them. It's just it was a reminder like, yeah, that they were really phenomenally good uh, during those years on a lot of levels. And, and coaching was one of them. Yeah. And you're seeing those guys get get hired now. I mean, Fangio's new the new uh, head coach in, in Denver and Roman is the new offensive coordinator in, in Baltimore. Um, uh, you're, and you're right. I mean, those two those two plays, arguably the, the two biggest, uh, certainly biggest offensive plays for the 49ers in that game were. Um, specifically installed that week. They, they had never been run uh, all season, and um, they, they were used, and boy, they were used at the exact right time, and uh, they, they did get a little bit lucky uh, for running that uh, that sweep to the left uh, because the Saints were, were blitzing from the opposite side on that play, uh, but, you know, that's the, that, that was their tendency, so if, if you were going to Flip a coin, um, you know that that would be the way that you would want to go, and also you would want to run behind Joe Staley on the left side, on the left side because uh, he gets out thirty yards ahead of that play and wipes out the safety. Yeah, it was uh, it was very very fun to read the story. Uh, I would definitely, again, if you haven't read it, definitely go read it because it was a lot of fun. Uh, so thanks, Matt, because it was it was really good. It was good to relive that game because it was probably one of the the high points of recent Forty Nine er fandom, if not the high point. Uh, and and now here we are trying to climb that mountain back again, figuring out what's yeah, going well, on. Yeah, well, thank you for uh, for bringing it up and and asking me about it. Uh, I, I appreciate the questions. Yeah, of course, of course. Well, thanks again, Matt, for coming on. It's always a pleasure to have you. Uh, where can they get you on the twitters? You have the probably best and most direct Twitter handle. Yeah, it's uh, at Matt Barrows. That's all you need to know. And um, yeah, as you noted, if if people are interested in and joining the athletic, I mean, that's the type of stories that we're shooting for. I mean, you can't do them all the time, but, uh, um, you know, it, it gives, uh, us the space, um, to, to write something like that. And it's something that I'd never be able to write in the newspaper, but, uh, but can on this, uh, this type of, uh, publication. And I, I think it's, you know, there are deals now, two ninety nine a month, something like that. There's always a sale going on, so yeah. never never pay full price for it. You can find uh, a pretty good discount. It's like one cup of coffee a month. Yeah, <laughs> yeah one cup of coffee. That, that's a good way of putting it. That is. Get a uh, cup yeah. of coffee with your, your morning sports paper. Uh, so, there you go. Matt, thanks again. I know I don't want to take up too much of your time. You've already been so gracious with it, but thanks, Matt. All right. Talk to you soon. 
That was Matt Barrows from The Athletic, and that was our show for the week. Thanks again for tuning in this week. You can always follow me on Twitter at Better Rivals, and I would definitely recommend you go and read that story in The Athletic because it, it really is an amazing story. So thanks again to Matt for coming on the show. We'll be back next week with David Newman. We'll, we're going to start off-season talk. We're going to get into the roster model evaluation where we will use our tiers to figure out exactly where the strengths and weaknesses of the 49ers roster are. I'm actually really interested to see how it compares to last year at the same time, especially given the developments of, uh, or I guess lack of development of players like Adrian Colbert. But uh, the off-season content kicks off now, so we'll be back with roster eval. We're going to go right into the free agency prep before we get into the draft. So thanks again for tuning in, and as always, go Niners! I'm Ashley Carmen. I'm Caitlin Tiffany. We're the hosts of Why'd You Push That Button, the Verge's show about all the choices technology forces us to make. We're back for season three, talking about questions like, why do you delete your tweets? And why do you type in lowercase letters that make you seem like a serial killer? And why are you on an exclusive dating app? You're not that special. <laughs> We're releasing a new episode every Wednesday, and you can find us anywhere you typically find podcasts, which is Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts. So go ahead and subscribe and check us out.